Greetings, honored guests, and welcome back to Giving the Gift of Murder, the audio chronicle of what may indeed be history's most elaborate murder mystery party. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I'm Sarah Starling. Today on the podcast, the history of the murder mystery genre, both in literature and in real life. But first, this. A check-in with our mysterious benefactor. Whomst is the impetus of all of our suffering in this, our deadliest project to date. So, let's jump right in, I guess, and talk about our mysterious benefactor, shall we? Yeah, so our mysterious benefactor, for those of you who did not go back and listen to episode zero, who, uh, why did you not do that? Uh, How dare you? Uh, We, as your ghost hosts, uh, do insist that you hear the entire scenario but the short version is our mysterious benefactor contacted us after many years uh to reunite us and to get us to plan and execute a murder mystery party uh one year plus from this date which is doable and yes. that's what we're going with <laughs> Uh, so, since the uh, sort of uh, beginning of our quest, there have been some adjustments to this plan. Yeah, and uh, not at all in part um, for us. This is, I mean, because everything is coming from our mysterious benefactor. We are the, I don't want to say fodder, but I feel like fodder might yeah, be the right I, word. I suppose maybe the messengers, the... Uh, the the gophers, the ones who go for doing things, and we go for it real yeah. good. <laughs> so we're going for it. Um, yeah. So our mysterious benefactor um, has um, started as this becomes more real and becomes more tangible. Our mysterious benefactor has started making um, tweaks, which we were ready for. We were kind of knew that this was going to be a thing, right? Right, Whenever flexibility is our, our strong suit here. Um, so the biggest thing that uh, she has tweaked is we had spoken previously about hosting this here in the very Valley of the Sun um, in Arizona, but now we're thinking about finding a, um, a venue in cooler climes. <laughs> Uh, in in a sort of a woodsier atmosphere as well, right? Uh, right, we're, right. So we're, we're, we're considering uh, high desert or low mountains. <laughs> right, we're thinking uh, we're thinking something that will give the um, the atmosphere um, that will help fuel uh, you know this this entire endeavor that we're going on. So rather than have it in the actual desert. Um, moving it to, say, northern Arizona, where there are um, trees and sometimes weather, um, I think we might have a bit more ambiance. I, I think that's fair, for sure. Because, like, when I think about a murder mystery party and I think about murder mystery stories in general, I think about thunder and lightning and uh, rainstorms that just won't quit and things like that. And while the Valley of the Sun in Arizona uh, has its share of those things, they tend to be uh, temporary, hard to predict, and overall uh, just not not scary in their form, if that makes yeah. any sense. Yeah, they're, not, they're... not inspiring. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, is that I 
I did think that the American Southwest, uh, sort of a desert uh, murder mystery party, mm. would be a novel concept, uh, an interesting place to hold a murder mystery with its own iconography that I think we could exploit. Uh, right, but we're not looking to rewrite the book here. We're looking to go above and beyond, like, do more, do extra, but I don't think we're trying to, like, reinvent the wheel. Right, so so a, a, a mansion out in a forest somewhere beset by inclement weather sounds much more appropriate. It, and and it, it feels more appropriate, and I think it would help lend, I mean, potentially our guests um, the kind of spooky ambiance and get that chill in the air and really help fuel, you know, the weekend that they're about to uh, to embark on. Not that we're trying to, like, predict the weather. <laughs> Um, but, but if we could, that would be pretty good. Yeah, and then, you know, we would be award winners. <laughs> um, so so that's the big change. The big change is moving um, the venue up a bit more northerner um, so that we can have a tree and maybe a weather and a better general ambiance, I think. Right. And, and uh, you know, this got me thinking about other famous murder type locations like mm-hmm. places where you would expect a murder mystery to unfold well it's such a trope of the the murder mystery especially like the murder mystery movie um you see uh, a couple in a car they're driving down a dark winding road there's all of a sudden rain their car breaks down and they have to take refuge where that spooky mansion that's in the right murder there. house in the murder house <laughs> Uh, named after John Murder, uh, who built this house in 1834. Right, right. He was a great man, a loving father. <laughs> yes. Uh, left a real impact on this community, and, and that's why everybody knows they can always take refuge in the murder house. Absolutely. But I think, you know, the isolation, the being out on the road, the no choice but to go to this spooky place, mm-hmm. uh, it all lends itself to the murder mystery, plus... If you're kind of in the middle of everything, it feels difficult to have a murder mystery unfold. Like, the question then becomes, like, where is your police department, right? Right. Uh, Which, as we all know, as lovers of story, uh, the police department doesn't arrive because then there would be no story. Right. Uh, We we witnessed this again and again, actually, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. The cops in that town just were sleeping the whole time. And, And for the better, because then our heroes got to have adventures. Right. Uh, so I think like a murder, a murder house out in the middle of nowhere with, uh, you know, cut telephone wires and things like mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. uh, where there's only one wire going to the house and no neighbors for miles is, is the perfect place. Yeah. I think that'll give us more play as well, um, as writers to kind of have our, um, our pl- playthings, our characters, <laughs> um, on an island, you know, there's nowhere to go, but to stay there. There's no recourse but to stay there and see the murder, um, the mystery play out. Because otherwise, I mean, if we were in a mansion in, you know, uh, downtown Phoenix or whatever, call an Uber. (laughs) Get out of there. Go, like, walk, you know, three blocks to the bus station. Um, But this way it'll help really um, kind of tighten that uh, that impetus for everyone to be there and to stay there despite yeah. there having been a murder. And I, I think it'll it'll give it more of a, a, a thorough illusion. It'll do mm-hmm. some of that work of of keeping everybody in the in the mood for murder, as it were, uh, for us. We won't right. have to have to try so hard. Right. There will be less heavy lifting, I guess, for us, like scene setting. 
Exactly. Because then the natural, um, you know, environment will kind of do that for us. Right. So that is our check-in with our mysterious benefactor. Uh, Sarah, I have one more question, and I'm going to spring this one on you uh, because it, it just occurred to me. Okay. You said we will have our guests on an island. Mm. And it made me think, like, oh, I haven't read an, uh, a murder mystery on a deserted island. Uh, that, wait, that's interesting. Wait, didn't you see Lost? Lost Isn't is, that the plot of Lost? Were they murdered? I thought I it know. turned out that they were in purgatory. I've never seen an episode. I have no <laughs> idea. I just thought that's what it was. There was a ghost. There was a polar bear. Or maybe the ghost was the polar bear. Bunch I have also died. only seen one episode. Okay. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. But, like, if you could ch- choose the ideal murder location or, like, a different murder location, if, if we had the blank check for mayhem, uh, what would you, where would you set? a murder mystery if you could set it anywhere so we're saying no holds barred i've got just carte blanche yeah to, our, okay. our our mysterious benefactor is not a multi-billionaire but let's say they were let's say they acquired that money and wanted mm-hmm. us to do whatever we could um where would you where would you set this murder mystery Okay, I'm definitely torn because the idea of, like, a private island, um, very, oh my god, think Scooby-Doo, the live action, like, boat people on over to this island and then screw with them for a weekend, great. Um, But also imagine, and this is, like, the depths of reaching into Limitless Pockets, Um, imagine renting out, like, a theme park. Oh my gosh. Because that that's exactly where my brain went. Like, that's if it. you could just close Disneyland down and pretend that somebody got murdered there. But and... not just Disneyland, but Disneyland during Halloween. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then that would the be perfect. En- and then the entire story culminates in the Haunted Mansion ride of Obviously. Disneyland. Obviously. And and here's, here's a great one. You could even do a part on the Disneyland Railroad because, <gasps> like, where better to have a murder mystery also play out than mm-hmm. on a train? Absolutely. So Which, you, could, I mean, you could really hit it all. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, there's a castle there, too. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's honestly, it's almost too perfect. Yeah, okay, so what I'm going to be working on in between now and our next episode is I'm going to convince our mysterious benefactor to probably marry and then murder someone for money. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, so that we can do this um, <laughs> instead. You know, the the thing, the problem with that is that now you have an actual murder mystery on your hand and oh, it's no. become less fun. No, it becomes more fun because it's the play within a play. Oh, how are we supposed to reveal that our benefactor is a murderer without making them reenact the murder? So at a through, murder mystery party. <laughs> through unraveling the clues in the, like, supposed written murder that is causing our mysterious benefactor to show her hand. The, the this, is, this is so Hamletian in its, uh, in its <laughs> construction that I, I positively... Uh, it's divine. I must right. have it. <laughs> All right. I'll, I will get working on um, securing her billion-dollar fortune. <laughs> you know, note to our future selves, though, if if there's a murder mystery within a murder mystery, that's a great idea for a way for the, the guests to try to solve it. Um, I mean, should that should that be the thing? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, think, I think we should at least make a note of it here in audio form so that okay. later we can remember that we did. Cool, cool, cool. Awesome. <laughs> um, I think let's not forget that idea. <laughs> uh, so noted. Okay. Wonderful. So, 
Sarah, we've got one more thing to talk about before we start delving into the history. Oh, great. If we're going to talk about where murder mystery came from mm. and how in, how in particular it has been employed specifically at parties as sort of a party game, mm-hmm. we need to talk about where murder mystery is in media these days. Like, okay. what exactly makes what we're doing any different from the, the general take on murder mystery that we see out there these days? So... I mean, as far as murder mystery parties go, I can't tell you, honestly, that I have ever been approached at, like, you know, uh, on a college campus and been like, whoa, bro, you want to come to this sick murder mystery party? (laughs) So I, I feel like as far as, like, the cultural, like, actively participating in murder mystery parties thing goes that it's kind of flying under the radar. Yeah, if it, it's it's not, I wouldn't say it's gone by any means. I'm sure there's many mur- murder mystery fans out there who maybe hopefully have found this podcast and know that they are home and that we're all going to talk about it together. <laughs> and then we'll uh, murder each other. Right, uh, for fun, but pretend also. Sure. Uh, so what what I'm worried about is that when we say murder mystery we might find ourselves drawing ourselves towards sort of the the modern take on murder in media in film television novels where it's it's ripped straight from the headlines it's realistic and gritty it's so like it's all bad gasp and egad and very shock value yeah yeah um i don't I, for a number of reasons i don't think that that is um, something that we, at least for this uh, for this event, uh, should go for. Yeah, and I I think it I think it's important to to sort of throw it back at our audience to be like or, or our guests, I guess, and and to to give them the freedom to know that this is going to be like a fun time mm-hmm. where things aren't going to be very serious. I mean, yes. Murder is one of our most serious crimes. It's, sure. it's an undeniably bad thing. So However, let's make light of it. Yeah, I, but I think there's a little bit of power in making light mm-hmm. of it collectively for, for entertainment uh, to to give people a fun motivation that we all understand uh, very viscerally and very easily, but also not to like over-gruesomify it. Right. Uh, and to, to keep it lighthearted and joyful. And I know that's like kind of the opposite of real murder but we're not doing a real murder uh we're doing right. a fun party for our friends and 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 it's kind of in the name it's a murder mystery party like it should be fun and one thing i was speaking with um our mysterious benefactor about um regarding that very issue is that we have um guests on our guest list which is now up to i want to say 18 or 20 people by the mm-hmm. way hmm. Um, who have experienced um, very real trauma in their lives yeah, and aren't going to be not necessarily they're not going to take kindly to jump scares or realistic death scenes or you know and so kind of I think it's important for us to embrace the camp so that we can have a fun immersive weekend without immersing our guests in trauma. Yes. And Sarah, before we did this episode, before we started it up, we actually coined a term that I love. 
uh, to kind of uh, give us a brand that we're always going to stick to. Mm. And that brand's name is Mellow Dramatic. Not just melodramatic, but no. mellow. With a W. Yes. <laughs> mellow Dramatic. Uh, a, a relaxed, over overly done sort of drama where... Mm. Uh, things are all gasp and egad, but because we are in character and just so put out by that this murder has happened right on our doorstep, oh my. And we uh, allow ourselves to relax by doing that right, because it's right. not an overly uh, gruesome or an overly violent or really an overly anything other than dramatic uh, right. sort of a thing. Yeah, and I think uh, the more, like, uh, what hands to foreheads and dramatic feints and, I mean, got pre- prefacing any, because we're going to need one, at least one drawn out scream, prefacing it with, to all of the guests, I feel I'm going to scream and then screaming, you know, like giving them that, like, trigger warning. I love it. Yeah, but, like, I, I think the important thing is to infuse this party with camp um, and with that charm that comes from the collective, the entire room gasps together. You know that feeling. Yeah, that idea of a of a collective experience mm-hmm. that is accessible and safe for everyone involved, yes. despite the the somewhat macabre subject material. Right. Uh, and and I think what's gonna what's gonna help that is uh, a focus on drama over the murder. Uh, yeah. The idea of family fortunes and missing heirlooms. Mm-hmm. I know those were things that our uh, mysterious benefactor was hoping to include as story elements. Right, right. Uh, long lost twins and evil twins and things like that. Very soap opera. Uh, yeah, but and, also and, very, very dime store novel. I mean, these are the things that, oh, and not to like give a spoiler for the history that we're about to get into, <laughs> um, but these are the things, um, the the things that the dime store and the Pulp Fiction writers were writing about were sensationalized, but not in the, like, crime procedural way that we see it nowadays, not in the, um, you know, the clickbait way that we see it nowadays, but in the, oh, and then her twin brother was actually her father! (gasps) And the world gasped, and suddenly the plot goes on. So I think... Uh, I think that'll be a really great way for us to keep the heart of this event grounded. Right. And so we've kind of come to the point now where we've talked a little bit about the format of the past, but we kind of jumped in at the middle. Perhaps it is best now to recede into the past, go as far back as we can, and identify the first kinds of murder mystery stories mm-hmm. that people told each other, the first popular kind of murder mystery, and then kind of move forward through history uh, until it became a popular format for parties. Great. Um, okay. That sounds awesome. I did some research, and I did not do very well, so <laughs> I I ask your, my dear honored guests, I ask your patience as I fumble through um, some ill-advised research that I did. Uh, but yeah, if you're ready, buddy, then let's get right into it. I am ready to be thrilled, shocked, and surprised. Well, the Shocked I... and surprised are the same thing. Thrilled, <laughs> shocked, and mortified. I can promise mortified. Oh, good. <laughs> 
Um, so let's go back in time, will you? Will you join me and go back in time? Um, the, the history of the murder mystery, as far as literature goes, some have said that it started with the Bible? Wow, really? Yeah, because in Genesis, Cain and Abel... And the whole, like, murder happening. Sure. And, you know, so, and I'm not saying that that's, like, a murder mystery, something that had to be solved. I feel like we, we pretty much know who did what. There were, like, it was a short read. There were, like, four people alive in the world, according to that story at that point. Certainly, certainly. But this is one of the first, like, instances, I guess, first. <laughs> I'm using that so loosely. Right. Um, One of the murders that could be spoken about in, you know, what, year 3000 when it was allegedly written or whatever? Sure. It was also, murder has been has been written about by every people because murder has always been a thing. And I think that um, murder is uh, both terrifying to us and also um, fascinating to us because it hits us at a base human level. It's the innocuous ending of one's life and not knowing who caused it. Um, it, it hits us in an instinctual level to find out what happened. Um, so peoples of all races and creeds across the millennia have been using art and literature to explore themes um, that scare us and also maybe reclaim that territory um, and find enjoyment and make levity and um, and so on through that. Yeah, I think, I think a big part of uh, the human experience is telling each other stories to make better sense of the world. And mm -hmm. one of the things that makes perhaps the least sense is one human taking another human's life. So... To, to turn it into a story kind of helps us come to terms with that. Right, and it, it takes something that is horrifying and makes it palatable. Um, almost like packaging it in bite-sized chunks. Yeah. Um, so, one of the... So, the, the, the predecessor, I guess, of the classic crime novel... Um, was a book called The Adventures of Caleb Williams. It was published in 1749 um, by a man named William Godwin. Um, and it tells the story of this dude who thought that his employer was murdered by a neighbor and framed by a tenant by planting evidence. And, like, you know, all of these, like, very, like, classic, like, murder mystery things, like... Who done it? Yeah, and it, it seems rather complex for something so early, uh, with with the planting of evidence and the mm -hmm. multiple suspects and things like that. Uh, kind of a really, I, I mean, a lot of that stuff sounds basic, but this isn't like uh, a mention of murder. This is like a, a pretty standard format for a murder mystery. Right, right, and that being, I mean, that was in the seventeen hundreds, in the early seventeen hundreds. Um, I think speaks to how this is just meant so much to so many people for so long. Um, prior to that, I mean, we're talking uh, the Bible, we're talking the Greeks, we're um, in 1001 Arabian Nights, there was a story called The Three Apples uh, about a dismembered body found in a heavy locked a uh, heavily locked chest in the vizier's task of solving the murder in Ooh. three days. Wow, I love it. Yeah, so I mean, we're going in the Wayback Machine, if you will. Um... 
So moving on then, I guess, to the uh, 1800s would be the Penny Dreadfuls. Hmm. So they were a, uh, a collection of stories that you could go and purchase for a penny. And that was something, it was mass produced. It was sold to the lower class humans for dirt cheap. And it offered them an escape from their dreadful reality. <laughs> uh, a, some, a somewhat more dreadful escape, but again, that, that dreadfulness being kind of a, mm-hmm. a thrill as well. Right, right. And and if nothing else, uh, potentially the schadenfreude, you know, that, oh, at least that's not happening to me. Like, yeah, I've got <laughs> tuberculosis, but I haven't just gotten murdered. Right. So that was uh, in the 1800s, uh, like early to mid-1800s. In the back half of 1800s um, in Europe, there came... Uh, what were called yellow backs and they were called that because they were little books I guess that were made yellow through the printing process and they were cheap and sensationalized they were the soap opera though they were the your spouse that lives at home is home all day and the kids are down for a nap let me read one of my yellow backs just like we would turn on um you know all my children or whatever <laughs> if this were 20 years ago I right guess. if if we were a little older <laughs> if, yes yes if we were of the, maybe the maybe uh, a little de- way older <laughs> yeah definitely the, the prior generation sure um but so that kind of uh, it, it's like a through line uh, that i'm seeing through history is that people going to uh, murder mysteries for escapism and for entertainment and for, um, I mean, for experiencing something other than what they are experiencing now. And yeah. I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, an experience outside of the ordinary. And I mm-hmm. think I think another thing that's interesting about uh, the formats that you've talked about so far is the popularity of them and how important it is that they're like accessible and uh, mm-hmm. cheap and quick. Uh, and I guess that can kind of lead to them feeling not very special, but at the same time, there's a, I don't want to say universal because I'm sure there's many people who don't care for them, but there's a a widespread appeal. Uh, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a certain, uh, charm that many people find in this kind of story. I wonder if because it's so mass produced and has so many tropes through the ages, if we're going to find ourselves feeling like it's it's kind of cheapened the experience. Uh, if, it, if it makes it feel less like a, a special thing that we're doing when we're writing it. Well, I think one of the things that makes the trope so special is people recognize it when it's happening. And so having something like, you know, a poisoned goblet found discarded on the floor, people recognize that and then they feel smarter for having recognized it. They're like, oh, I figured that clue out. Yeah, and I think I think it's interesting to get, to kind of take that in a different direction. We're not mm. feeling smart for solving the murder necessarily. We're feeling smart for recognizing tropes and following the story. Right. And knowing which parts of the story are significant based mm-hmm. on our recognition of tropes, uh, which... Actually, that's an incredibly satisfying experience. I know it sounds like I'm kind of uh, deriding it right now, but like understanding yeah, the really, language. You're really taking me on a ride right now. <laughs> understanding the language of something and uh, and then 
being part of it as a community with other people and showing that, oh, we're all in on this together is like really important to the shared storytelling experience. So that's going to, in effect, like tighten the camaraderie there within our within our guests as they're experiencing that they're all seeing together oh there's that trope and we all know what that means right well it would be it would be silly for us as writers of a story like this to uh leave clues and hints that nobody will see or that nobody will recognize right to waste our time and everyone else's time right and 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 everybody would be like oh but i never saw that so Mm -hmm. what was the point uh and that would really take away from the murder mystery in general and i think that's why the stories are set up that way in such a tropey way right I agree. I think we've cracked this case wide open. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, right. Speaking of cracking cases wide open, what happens next in the in the late 1800s? In the well, I'm going to take you to the mid 1800s for just a hot second. Okay. Um, because people have called Edgar Allan Poe the father of the detective story hmm. because he actually introduced mystery fiction's first uh, fictional detective. Hmm. He was, like, the guy that did the thing, in, and that was in 1841. But he married his 13-year-old cousin, so I'd love to spend time looking at people that didn't marry a child. Right. So instead, what I would love to do is to look at um, some other incredible authors that have shaped and really fueled the murder mystery genre through the years. You down? I'm ready. Awesome. Awesome. So, the first woman to write detective and mystery fiction um, was an American named Anna Catherine Green. Uh, She published The Leavenworth Case in 1878 and sold a quarter of a million copies. Which I believe was 98% of all humans on the planet at that point. Absolutely. It definitely (laughs) was. And many of them were buying four or five. Right. Um, and, And again, like, I am pulling all of this from a source so if I'm wrong please let me know honored guests please call me out on my BS if this is wrong and we'll post our um, our sources in the in the show notes honored sure. guests you do not need to call me out I know that that was a, a bad joke okay <laughs> um so uh Anna Catherine Green uh, publishing the Leavenworth case in 1878 sold like a bajillion copies it earned her the title of the mother of the detective novel. Um, she used the idea of leading the audience to uncover hidden facts that were often tied in with history that led to the res- the resolution of her crime. Like, she's the one that did that. Huh. In 1878. Oh, wow. So, like, the connections to historical facts that hopefully the audience would know and pick up on. Right, right. So, and that's, again, basing something in your audience's um, wheelhouse that they already have an understanding of. It just connects them to the story. Wow, I I love that. That's Note to our future selves, that is a great basis for clues. So don't forget that, selves. (laughs) Um, So Anna Catherine Green's uh, success, um, basically, she, she caused, like, a snowball. Um, of, and I'm mainly talking about female mystery authors because that's who I am as a human. Right. Um, but Mary Roberts Reinhardt, known as the American Agatha Christie, um, Dorothy Cameron, Disney, um, Agatha 
Christy, of course. Of course. Um, and and did you know? Speaking of Mary Roberts Reinhardt, she actually coined the phrase, "The Butler did it." Really? Yeah, dude. But that. Uh- we must we must remind our guests that we the butlers did not do it. Oh, it wasn't us. No, it would never be us. It would never. Would, no, we're you know us. Of course. <laughs> I mean, I mean, come on. Can you imagine us no. murdering? No. no. Nah. Come on. Nah. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, but but that the that the phrase was invented and coined by a single author is fascinating. Absolutely, and that was so long ago, and it's again one of these tropes that has lived on and taken a life of its own and ultimately i think frankly inspired clue the movie uh, at least indirectly at least yeah yeah whether it was a direct uh, direct inspiration or not but um so th- this entire study into this history has really been blowing my mind but let's move right along shall we of course so we get into the mid teens of the uh 1900s um, and this is when a new form of mystery, because we had seen the Penny Dreadfuls, we had seen um, the uh, the Dime Store novels in America, we had seen um, a lot having to do with more supernatural elements. We're seeing this whole world happen. But then in the early 1900s, or yes, early 1900s, a new form of murder mystery happened, and it's called the Locked Room Mysteries. Ooh. So it's it basically presents the detective uh, with a with an impossible situation. The victim is murdered without any way for the killer to have gotten inside or to exit the room. It's locked. Ooh. And then the reader is presented with everything that they like all of the clues that they could possibly use to figure it out and their challenge to figure out how the murderer was able to kill um, and then vanish. That's okay. So that reminds me of our modern escape rooms, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a really interesting form of interactive storytelling that I think might be the subject of a later episode. Oh, certainly. That that strikes me as a very short sort of read, like a very uh, short form sort of detective fiction uh, that asks the reader to play the part of the detective. Yeah, uh, kind of this, uh, the detective is the audience surrogate. And so they are experiencing the mystery as the detective is and, and having them go along and figure it all out. Yeah. Oh, that's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to look into more locked room mysteries. That sounds great. I mean, potentially we could even do a locked island mystery, but maybe oh. that's too big. <laughs> Can you lock up an entire island? Dear they... future self, when you have the billions of dollars, investigate island locking. Okay, I kid you not. They did this in the live action Scooby-Doo. They locked them guys down. They did that. They were they stuck They locked there. them to the island? Well, I mean, they were a little brainwashed or whatever, but oh, of course. is that effectively locking someone? I suppose, yes. It's I just another venture. form of prison, a prison of the mind. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, and so, moving on ahead, the golden age of mystery and detective fiction um, started in around 1913 through the beginning of uh, World War II. And this is where some of the best-known um, British mystery writers... Um, and American writers. That's where everyone was really, like, cranking their gears down. This is where you get uh, Dorothy L. Sayers, Marjorie uh, Allingham, 
um, Agatha Christie, May She Reign Forever. May She Reign. Um, I mean, May She Reign. Um, and just, I mean, so many on and on throughout the, throughout the 1900s. Um, and then this kind of goes on into the turn of the century as we found a, a new type of murder mystery come around as um, the rise of patriotism and a newfound respect for government forces and authority. Um, the writers started showing the police and the investigators in a better light. Back in the 1800s, they were really hound-dogging on the police force and the detectives. <laughs> they were like, oh, these bumpkins can't figure anything out. And yeah, then, uh, cons- lots of consulting detectives showing people how how to deduce things based on evidence and right, facts. right. And then you get and then you get the turn of the you know the dirty cop that was it was him all along. Um, but so as you get further into the 1900s and patriotism sweep kind of began, then the stories began to be more of we, we got more police procedurals. And that kind of bleeds from there into, you know, as TV and movie began and movies began, you're getting more and more. And still to this day, I think NCIS is still on. It is a uh, short may it rain. <laughs> I completely agree, but it's still going on. And it's because it is showing someone that is um, in the position of authority that is tasked with solving the thing and then they go out and they solve the thing and everyone feels better at the end of the day yeah a sort of restoration of mm-hmm. order uh, a uh, backing up of the righteousness of the police force that sort of thing it's hard to not see it as a uh, very pro-authority message mm-hmm. um, and it is the dominant form of murder mystery that we see these days absolutely now, I will say, the one detective that I left out of this... Oh, okay. I left out a lot of detectives. This was by no <laughs> means exhaustive. No. It was exhausting, <laughs> but not exhaustive. Right. Um, the detective that I really want to bring up just for a moment is Batman. Oh, yeah. Because you've got the idea of that, uh, the film noir, you know, that uh, kind of jilted P.I. that has seen too much of the world and doesn't want anything to do with anything, you know? Yeah. And he's ashing his cigar and he's, you know, hailing taxi cabs. (laughs) (laughs) Things that people did back in the day. Um, And it was through the works of the noir writers and the uh, noir uh, uh, TV and film that Batman came to be a thing. Yeah, and, and his his role as a pulpy comic book hero that maintains popularity through accessibility and through yes. many authors using him is part of what makes him such an interesting character and his, his uh, role as world's greatest detective, that mm-hmm. reputation precedes him. Yes. And I think he is the living embodiment of the old days of pulp fiction and of these dime store novels. I mean, Batman is accessible. He has been repackaged and revisited in a thousand different ways, a thousand different times. But it's something about this detective 
that speaks, I think, to so many people. And that's why that ultimately has been so successful. But I didn't feel like I could talk about history detectives and crime solving without talking about Batman. I have a question for you and feel free to say, oh, that was on purpose. Uh, We're leaving out Sherlock Holmes. Yes, we are leaving out Sherlock Holmes only because I didn't even have the time to get into. <laughs> and he is, he is his own uh, can of uh, books. <laughs> uh, yes. Books in a can. Mm-hmm. Oh, write that down. Uh, idea for can. future books in a can. Wow, we just made a million dollar idea. Let's quit the pod. Well, hopefully it's several billion so I can lock an island up. <laughs> um, yeah, so we I, I did leave out Sherlock Holmes because what do you say about the man who has solved every crime? Um, but he, as a character, has been around for so long and been um, explored in so many different types of mixed media. I mean, growing up, I watched Sherlock Holmes, what was it, Detective of the 22nd Century? Like, yeah, his- with Robot Watson. Um, <laughs> yeah, which, by the way, is the best Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, and the the theme song is a serious bop, so... uh, Absolutely, and an earworm, so be careful, honored guests. Honored guests, please do protect yourselves. Um, So yes, I have specifically left out Sherlock Holmes, but I didn't leave him out the same way that I left out Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I didn't do that so intentionally and so brusquely. (laughs) Um, Because as far as I know... um, who is it? Uh, Arthur Conan Doyle that wrote Sherlock Holmes. I don't think he married his 13-year-old cousin. That's what I've heard. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So <laughs> we will visit the realm of Baker Street at another point, I think. I agree. Well, then I guess since we've come up to the modern era and we've talked about perhaps the world's greatest detective of all time, mm-hmm. all time, uh, Batman, of course. Right. Uh, that I should speak to a little bit of, about how audiences and groups of people have used the murder mystery as a way to celebrate uh, in the form of parties and party games. And I am sad to say that my research was not fruitless, but not necessarily as fruitful as yours, because there just isn't a lot of documentation of the murder mystery party in popular practice. Right. Uh, I have just the the smatterings of of popular murder mystery parties. If you think about it, the very idea of getting a group of people together for a celebration and then pretending to murder one of them... I mean, yeah, right? (laughs) That's cuckoo bananas. That's That's a little wacky. You'd have to be... You'd have to be in a rather comfortable position. Uh, there's a difference between acting something out and reading it, right? Yeah. And reading a, a, a dime store novel or a Penny Dreadful, it, it provides an escape and a sensational thing, and it's not about you. But if you sure. go and make this about you and you start to experience it, I think that does uh, require a different level of just being okay with the idea of pretending to murder. Um, right. And and I can imagine for much of history that it wouldn't have been a very comfortable thing. Sure. Uh, so my records that I was able to dig up on the world's greatest resource, Wikipedia, uh, really only start in the 
40s kind of there there was a murder mystery game sort of a prototype in 1935 it was called the jury box game oh uh what would happen was you would you would be presented with all of the details of a case by a narrator uh and they would give you all of the clues and hints uh they would give you the testimony they might even in uh more elaborate sets have um photographs of the crime scene oh and your role was to be on the jury of this murder uh and kind of uh decide who is guilty and who is innocent based on the clues at hand and i can imagine that being a pretty fun party game but it has a very binary ending where the jury is either correct or they are not Uh, and I, i can also imagine being told like you just convicted somebody who was innocent to be a bit of a downer uh, right. and not really that much fun. Uh, the next popular uh, murder mystery game that really saw wide release was Clue, uh, or as it's known uh, across the pond, Cluedo. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Across which pond? The Atlantic. Okay. All right. <laughs> Cluedo? Yeah, that's what they call it in England. All right. (laughs) My brain broke. Uh, And it was invented in England, uh, actually during the London Blitz. Oh, so we ruined it by renaming it. Yes, we renamed it. Okay. Uh, And it was called Cluedo back then. It was invented during the Blitz by the people who invented it uh, as a way to uh, entertain themselves while down in bunkers. Uh, It was released in 1948 uh for for wider audiences uh and it's not really uh it's not anything like a dinner party game uh right. it, it's still very much in that prototype stage you play a character that doesn't really have any background or any character traits other than uh dressing in one color i suppose wait are you describing angry birds i'm yes <laughs> yes i think you <laughs> it, are it, it, well Angry Birds Clue Edition, yes. Uh, So there's not a lot going on there. Um, Now, there were... See, and and this is the problem with with the research I was able to do. There are other murder mystery type games, obviously, happening around this time. The problem is that they don't have a lot of documentation. That the dinner party sort of uh, atmosphere was very much like a... A pastime of the wealthy who had the time and the space to bring people into their home and feed them and pretend to die. Uh, and then, like, it, that would just fade into obscurity. The The classical party game doesn't have, like, a, a library of these things. They would just kind of write up some frivolous story and then they would lose it. Uh, at least that's my guess, because... After doing all of this reading, between 1948 and the 1980s, no popular party game was invented and mass-produced for people to do that was related to murder mystery. So it must have been on a smaller scale uh, and much more personal. And I think that's interesting because it kind of speaks to our mission here. Because we are bespoke custom ordered making this murder mystery for people that we know uh so we can kind of try and go a little bit deeper with how we construct the characters and how they uh interact but Mm -hmm. we're not tied to any particular tradition because a lot of those traditions are lost to time 
Uh, now, I should say that one major party game of the 1980s was invented by somebody named Dmitry Davidoff. Uh, he invented a game that we now know as Mafia. And I know that we have both played this game multiple times. Oh, are you telling me <laughs> that that... Wait, what year did you say that was? 1986. 86. Mafia, at least in its first form. It was just some dude... Yeah, just some. He was a uh, Russian student uh, at, at university, uh, who, as a way to kind of demonstrate uh, psychology, invented this as a game for his classroom. Ah, oh, crap! Uh, so this was this was like a an invention of the 1980s, which. You know, I always thought that Mafia was kind of an eternal game, a game that right. had always been played, where where some of the players have information and some of the players do not, uh, and everybody's kind of working together to piece together clues. But honestly, the thing that has always bugged me about Mafia is how little ability you have to really gather evidence other right. than than to just talk and hope that somebody drops something or reacts mm -hmm. in a certain way mm -hmm. uh, that helps you understand that they are mafia. And I know there's a popular um, uh, variation known as werewolf, much the same. Right. Some people are werewolves. You don't know who. There's uh, different abilities for different players and things like that. It's a fun game. I love it. Uh, yeah. And mafia has been mass produced in many different forms, uh, as has werewolf. And the other thing that I found in my research, and, and that's actually kind of like the last major event in the development of the Murder Mystery Party, uh, the other thing I found are these kits. So the other avenue that people have taken in developing Murder Mystery Party is kind of keeping the spirit of these smaller, uh, more bespoke stories alive is to develop pre-made murder mystery kits where... So you you click buy or send a check-in by Carrier Pigeon or however they used to do it back right. in the day and you are given in a box the like characters in the story? Right. Uh, kind of character cards, dossiers, <sighs> uh, events over the course of the night, uh, things that your character can say to other people... Uh, a little bit of direction in that way, ways that you can act in certain situations to kind of tip people off, that sort of thing. So you kind of buy the experience uh, pre-packaged. And I love that because that means we're not alone in doing this. Right. That there are experienced people out there that we can speak to or that we can even just buy their product as research and see how they're doing it and what we want to do differently for our particular circumstances and for our mysterious benefactor. So we're, we're, we're going pants shopping, but for murder mystery story tropes and plot devices? Exactly. And, and ways that. that characters can interact and things, mm -hmm. like, things like that. Mm -hmm. So if anybody out there happens to know somebody who designs these things, please, they must contact us. We can be reached by Carrier Pigeon. Uh, or Twitter, which is just carrier pigeons for the modern age. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I guess that brings us to the question of, like, we've learned a lot from mm -hmm. our search into the history. Uh, where do we think we can, like, take it from here, then? If so much work has already been done. Right. Um, well, I think that's just the question <laughs> um, that I, I had really hoped that my research that I had did that I had done on literature and the 
roots in the history of the murder mystery that it was going to be like illuminatory and I was suddenly going to wake up in a dead sweat in the middle of the night with the answer <laughs> uh, and unfortunately I, I'm still a bit in the dark however the one thing that I have discovered through my research um, and something we're going to have to go into greater depth in in another episode um, is the how to write a murder mystery story the key to it all I figured it out I cracked the case you want to hear it? yes every source that I've seen every site that I go to every single resource that I found has said that in order to write a successful murder mystery you have to start with the conclusion and work your way backward interesting so you start with the shocking revelation of all of the things and then you go backward step by step so that you can leave the appropriate clues you can um introduce characters when they need to be introduced you can do everything but you know where you're coming from so you know how to get there i love that I think we can talk more about that on our next episode. I agree. I think starting then, at the end. Start at the end and work your way to the beginning and hope when it's all said and done, some of it makes sense. And from the game design standpoint, something I was hoping to get was like, what does all of this need in order to succeed, right? Uh, right. And something that I ran into was this idea that these games the boxed sets specifically what they sell themselves on is having been tried and true play tested games mm. games that have been played many times by many people and have successfully been solved and left people feeling good about what they did like they had accomplished so it they have tested this story on beta testers exactly beta testing like you would for a video game just in real life and this is how a lot of board games and card games sure. get their start so my problem with that is we can't beta test this game yeah how how are we supposed to try out the clues and get a through line on our story without someone to try it on Anything that we would do would have to be of the highest secrecy. Wow. So I guess we could talk about that more on the next episode. <laughs> that sounds as great. Well. Maybe we'll have a better <laughs> idea of what's going to happen by then. I hope so. Because, you know, this podcast, putting it together, is a lot of fun. And I can already feel my, my brain expanding with mm -hmm. all of these great ideas about what a murder mystery is and what it needs. And yeah. Sarah, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. Oh, no, thank you. I mean, this is going to be probably... I assume one of the hardest things that I, at least I'll ever do because it's going to like make me try for once in my life to do something consistently ever. <laughs> um, so that'll be cool. Um, but I fully expect to I mean, just thoroughly enjoy this process uh, with you, buddy, as my co-host because, man, I feel like we have so far to go. But every single step, I think, is going to be thrilling and terrifying and just enjoyable outright. Excellent. This has been an episode of Giving the Gift of Murder. We are your spooky butlers. I'm Buddy Duquesne. And I am Sarah Starling. You can follow us on Twitter at GivingMurder or at GiftOfMurderPodcast.com. 
or on our personal Twitters. I'm at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E. And I am Sarah underscore Starling. Our theme music is by the illustrious Devin Coates. Additional music comes from Kevin McLeod of the Free Music Archive. Find everything by Kevin at incompetech.com. We anxiously await your RSVP for the next episode. And remember, it was never the butlers.